We are in, I don't, frankly, I can't remember what week we're in, maybe a fifth week of a sermon series called Teach Us to Pray, Teach Us to Pray. Um, Many of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, and uh, you might know the context of it is that Jesus' disciples watched Jesus praying, and they saw the power uh, that resulted from him praying, and so at one point they said, Jesus, please teach us to pray, and he did so, and he taught them what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the Lord's Prayer, it's broken up into various clauses. And so there are three first clauses. There's the clause or the petition, hallowed be thy name. There's the second clause or petition, thy kingdom come. And there's the third petition, which is thy will be done. Uh, Frequently, when people look at the Lord's Prayer, they refer to those as the three Godward petitions. They're basically asking God to do these things for himself, for his name, and for his kingdom. And then the second half of the Lord's Prayer, we actually do see that there uh, seems to be three manward petitions. And the first of those manward petitions is the one we're going to focus on today, where Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Let's do this. We're going to jump into Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. I'm going to read this. It'll be up on the screen. And then after I read it, I'm going to pray, and we'll jump into this passage. Beginning in verse 5 of Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, the actors. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a great reminder that God sees us even when no one else does. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray today that um, as we hear your voice and your words um, commanding, telling, uh, training the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, Father, I pray that this would be a prayer that we pray as well. And Father, I pray that when we pray and as we pray the Lord's Prayer, Father, that it would actually shape our hearts, that it would shape our minds, and that it would even shape our lives, Father. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So those of you who know me uh, a little bit know that I am probably one of the cheapest people on the planet. Um, I drive a 20-year-old Toyota Camry. And if I won the lottery today, I would continue driving my 20-year-old Toyota Camry. Um, It's just sort of woven into me somehow. I've sort of lived that life um, and that way for a long, long time now. Uh, Back in college as a freshman, I was very conscious of um, how much college cost, what my parents were contributing and what I was contributing. And so I was always very careful to try to be frugal in college. And uh, so when during the spring semester of my freshman year, I was invited to go to spring break with a bunch of guys from the soccer team, um, I thought about it a little bit and I thought, okay, I think I can do it, but I've got to create a budget for myself. And so like so many other spring break trips that people take in college, you don't even really know where you're going to be staying along the way. You just hop in a car with some people and you sleep on a floor here and a couch there, et cetera, et cetera. So I knew that much. So we went down to Florida. But one of the things that I did is my food budget 
for my uh, week of spring break was about $4.99. I got a loaf of bunny bread. I don't know if you've ever heard of bunny bread, but it's white bread that you can buy in Kroger probably. And I got a jar of peanut butter. And I basically figured out I can live off of bread and peanut butter for an entire week on spring break. And so that's how I justified going on spring break my freshman year. Fortunately, a really kind family at some point during that trip took us to the Olive Garden, and for one meal, I got to eat like an absolute king. It was amazing. Anyway, I still ate a lot of the bread, though, that they provided. Anyway, you know, our relationship with food is uh, probably pretty different with that uh, than that. Um, we, we don't, most of us don't really understand hunger. Back in 1950, uh, the Korean War began. Some of you might not even know that a Korean War occurred. It lasted for about three years. Basically, what happened was is that China and Russia partnered up with North Korea to invade South Korea. And so for three years, a, a war raged on there. And over three million people were killed uh, in that three years war. And so as you might imagine, there were any number of different homes that were shattered. In fact, um, many of the children uh, of both of those countries were left as orphans. And uh, recently I read um, a story that told about one of the orphanages where they took in these kids uh, that were caused by the Korean War. And one of the stories that I read was about a little girl whose parents had both been killed in some of the bombing. She was about four years old at the time. And so she had really reached this point of starvation as she was sort of hiding out among bombed out buildings and in all these horrible circumstances. Fortunately, someone found her and brought her to this orphanage and she was given, you know, food, she was given water, she was given a bed, she was given all of these things. I mean, every material need that she could have desired was given to her in this orphanage. But as they watched this little girl, they watched her mental and emotional and somewhat physiological state deteriorate. And they were like, what is wrong? Why is she struggling so much? And part of what they found as they watched her is that she was hardly sleeping at night. She had the hardest time going to sleep because she was filled with anxieties and worries and concerns, as you might imagine. But one of the things as they spent some time with this little girl talking to her and finding out what was going on that was keeping her from sleeping, part of what they realized was keeping her from falling asleep was the fact that she had neared starvation. She was worried every night before she went to bed that she wouldn't be able to have any food for the next day. And so one of the uh, nurses that worked at this orphanage decided to try giving her a piece of bread at night. And what they found was that she would hold on to this piece of bread and not even eat it. She would just hold on to it to make sure that she had food when she did require it, even though there was going to be breakfast and lunch and dinner the next day. Many of us have a similar mental state when it comes to God and to our needs. Many of us are like that little girl. We're terrified that we're not going to have enough. We're terrified that no one's going to take care of us, that no one's going to provide for us, that we're alone. And into that fear, Jesus meets us, he meets his disciples, and he invites them and us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He says, take that request to a good father who knows what you need already before you even ask him. The question is, what are the implications of that petition? Well, the first thing I think that we see is that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, I think that what Jesus is doing is I think he's recommending that we come to him every single day in prayer. As a church, Seven Hills Fellowship, that's us for those of you who are new, Seven Hills Fellowship is not particularly directive. Uh, and what I mean by that is we don't really tell you what to do very often. 
that's largely driven by at least three factors. And those three factors are this tradition, education, and personality. And that's not just true for Seven Hills Fellowship. It's actually true for at least all of the churches that I'm familiar with um, in America. Some church traditions expect the pastor to tell them what to do spiritually, culturally, and even politically. That's sort of woven into some church traditions. You've probably seen some of that working out over the last several years, especially in the arena of politics and probably in culture. I doubt, however, that you've seen or felt much of that here at Seven Hills Fellowship. It's just not part of our ecclesiastical tradition. In fact, part of our ecclesiastical tradition is to sort of avoid those things and instead to focus on the gospel. Education is a factor sometimes in how directive a church is. Um, The more educated a church body is, typically the less they want to be told what to do. In fact, generally speaking, more educated people chafe in the, you know, when they're in an overly directive church. Generally, educated people want to be given ideas, they want to wrestle with those ideas, and then they want to arrive at their own conclusions without somebody telling them what to think or what to do. Now, as some of you probably know, Seven Hills Fellowship is ex- uh, pretty exclusively comprised of fairly educated people. And even those people in Seven Hills Fellowship who haven't been educated formally are people who tend to think philosophically, and they tend to think deeply, even if they don't have you know, advanced degrees, right? And so that shapes who we are as a church. Finally, how directive a church is often depends upon a, a pastor's gifting, especially the founding pastor's gifting. Uh, a pastor who is uh, sort of a high D, to use a certain set of uh, language from personality testing, might create a culture that is very, very directive, whereas a pastor who's high I, uh, more of an influencer, would tend to create a culture that takes, where uh, basically direction takes a backseat to inspiration and relational harmony, and I'm much more of a sort of a high I than a high D. Now, I say all of that stuff to sort of introduce this idea here. I'm going to break form for just a moment, and I'm actually going to be a little more directive. Some of you might be thinking, well, finally, I'm glad somebody is telling us what to do. My directiveness is this. I think this petition leads us to a conclusion that we should not only pray every day, but that we should even pray to begin our day, all right? Listen to, again to the clause um, from the Lord's Prayer, this petition. Give us this day our daily bread. The word translated this day is semeron in Greek, and it can also be translated today, but it clearly means give us this day, give us today our daily bread. So if Jesus is directing the disciples to pray about today or about this day, which is also, again, this legitimate translation for their daily bread, when do you think that prayer needed to be prayed or should be prayed or would likely to be prayed? If you're a fisherman like Peter, you pray that prayer before you go fishing in the morning. You pray that prayer before you go out into the fields. You pray that prayer before you go out to work as a day laborer. In other words, I think this section of the Lord's Prayer suggests to the disciples and to you and me that we're actually to start our day with prayer, right? Now, that may sound like just nothing to you. You might be like, yeah, of course. But the reality is, again, I feel like I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone here to tell you that I think that God wants us to begin our day with him. There's an old Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. He affirms this idea. Listen to his quote. He says this, I ought to pray before seeing anyone. 
Often when I sleep long or meet with others early, so it is 11 or 12 o'clock before I begin in secret prayer. This is a wretched system. It is unscriptural. Christ arose before day and went into a solitary place. David says, early I will seek thee. Thou shalt early hear my voice. I feel it is better to begin with God, to see his face first, to get my soul near him before it is near another. Martin Luther seemed to affirm this idea of beginning our day in prayer as well. He says this, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. Now, let me uh, answer the question that some of you guys are asking in your head, which is, does the Bible actually teach this overtly? Does it say somewhere, thou shalt pray each morning? And the answer is no, it does not. But it does seem at least to be a very, very good idea. It does seem that Jesus prayed in the morning. He also prayed at night. David did as well. So did Martin Luther. So did Robert Murray McShane. For a while now, um, probably for quite a while, I've been trying to begin each day myself in prayer and with God's word. One of my favorite quotes from that old Scottish pastor I just mentioned a minute ago, Robert Murray McShane, is this. He says, I vow to see no man's face until I've seen the face of my Father in heaven. Let me read that one more time. I vow to see no man's face until I have seen the face of my Father in heaven. I encourage you to do the same. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, let's keep going. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're also asking God for something in particular. We're asking him to give us what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? Does Jesus literally mean that we can pray for bread and nothing more, right? Some of you out there who have been praying the Lord's Prayer for years, and you've been assuming that's all you can pray for is bread. Some of you love bread so much, you're actually okay with that, right? Especially if you've been on a keto diet, you're like, I'll pray for bread all day long. (laughs) Yeah, your trespasses get forgiven in the rest of this prayer, and you get to pray that God would deliver you from evil, but only bread, Surely Jesus had something more in mind when he was teaching the disciples to pray this section of the Lord's Prayer. I'm pretty confident he did. Some of you are familiar with the term synecdoche. It's a literary term or a figure of speech where we use the part of one thing to identify or describe the whole thing. And so sometimes a car is referred to as a set of wheels. Uh, It's much more than that, but again, we intuitively understand what somebody means when they say that. Uh, We often refer to people working in business or in the business world as suits or a suit or boots on the ground to mean soldiers that are on deployment. And every theologian that I read in regard to this passage agreed that when Jesus instructed his disciples to pray for this daily bread, he was using the term as synecdoche to indicate that they turn to God in prayer to meet all of their needs. In our home, there are certain phrases that get bandied about pretty regularly, Uh, If you were to ask our kids, I'm sure they could give you probably more than we could even think of. But one would be, how you say something is as important as what you say. Let me say that one more time. How you say something is as important as what you say. In other words, you can say, sorry, or you can say, I'm really sorry, right? That would be an instance of how you say something being as important as what you say. Another Pierce phrase is, inch by inch, life is a cinch. Inch by inch, life's a cinch. Mile by mile, life's a trial. If you have a 200-page book to read for school, you can either read 20 pages a night for 10 nights, or you can try to read all 200 pages in one sitting. I don't think I need to tell any of you that 20 pages a night is going to be much easier in the long run. 
And then uh, as it pertains to this sermon, one of our phrases in the Pierce household is needs before wants, needs before wants. Essentially, what we're saying is you may want to scroll through your Instagram feed before school in the morning, but you need to take a shower, you need to eat breakfast, and you need to brush, brush your teeth first. Do what you need to do before you do what you want to do. When Jesus instructed the disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he was telling the disciples that they were to turn to God and ask him to grant their needs. It was in submission to God. It was recognizing that they needed to trust in him. The question is, what do we need? For thousands of years, coming up with the answer to that question for most people would have been really, really easy. In the ancient Near East, laborers were largely paid daily. That's sort of the way that it would have worked. That's if you weren't a farmer or a fisherman. There's a Roman coin, which is frequently referred to in scripture as a denarius, and it literally was a day's wage. It was about uh, the equivalent of $3.75 in our uh, current monetary system. And with that daily wage, Jesus' listeners, in this case largely the disciples, they would have had to buy food and clothing. They would have had to acquire shelter. Now, if you weren't a day laborer, but instead you were a farmer or a shepherd, then you would have been even more closely linked with what your daily needs were. Those needs would have been greatly impacted by rainfall. They would have been impacted by disease, all sorts of other things. If you were a fisherman, you needed to catch fish first, uh, every day in order to provide for your family. So when Jesus' listeners prayed this section of the Lord's Prayer, I'm sure that they had a pretty good idea in mind just what they needed. Admittedly, this is tricky for us in America today. We live in arguably the wealthiest nation in the history of the world where we have salaries and some people have paid vacations, people have Roth IRAs. We have a welfare system that provides people with their daily needs if for some reason they're unable to work. So if most of us have what we need, then where does this section of the Lord's Prayer even lead us? There are a couple answers to that question. Let's begin with this. I'm going to say that it leads us to repentance and to thanks or confession and gratitude. That's the next point. As I said last week, each of the clauses in the Lord's Prayer is a very deep pool that you can actually get lost in. In fact, if you go for a prayer walk, you can pray, hallowed be thy name, and you can find that 42 minutes later, you're still praying, hallowed be thy name. In the same way as you pray, hallowed be thy name, you can also think about how God's name isn't hallowed in the world that you're living in. It might lead you to confession. And so what happens is, as I pray these various sections of the Lord's Prayer, I often find myself in thanksgiving, but also in repentance. That's true, of course, in this section of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. I'm immediately re reminded of the ways in which I am oftentimes not satisfied with what God has given me. In fact, I, I even complain about what he's given me oftentimes, or I daydream about things other than what he's given me. We see the same pattern as well as the theme of bread in Exodus 16. Now, some of you guys are familiar with Exodus 16, but it's after God, uh, through Moses, has led the children of Israel out of slavery. He shows up in dramatic fashion. He rescues his people. They were slaves. And then there were plagues. They watched these plagues occur. The Red Sea parted. God was present with the Israelites in the form of a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And amazingly, here in 16, chapter 16, they still grumble and complain. Look at verse 2, verses 2 through 4. 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, right? They just left Egypt, right? They just got rescued in this dramatic fashion. Clearly, this is a little bit of revisionist history here. The question is, how would God respond to their lack of gratitude and to their complaining? Verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. In other words, God said, I will continue to be faithful to them. I will continue to meet their needs, right? I, I, at least, am not that different from these Israelites. God has blessed me in countless, innumerable ways. He's shown up time and time again, and I still often find myself unsatisfied. Like the Israelites, I forget so quickly how God has provided for me and how quickly he's provided for our family with everything we need and even more. So I pray, give us this day our daily bread, and immediately I'm moved to confession, to confess, to repent, how I've taken what God has given me and how he's taken care of us, how I've taken it for granted, and how I've often been so unsatisfied with what he has blessed me and our family with. But not only am I moved to confession and repentance, I'm also moved to thanks as I remember how much God has blessed us. We have a house, we have cars, we have food, our kids are in good health, and they love the Lord. God has been good to us, and he continues to give us our daily bread. Where else does all of this lead us? I think finally we see that this prayer, give us today our daily bread, or this day our daily bread, is it leads us to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew begins with a lineage to show the Jewish people that Jesus was a direct descendant of David. And Matthew then tells the story of the wise men coming and visiting and worshiping Jesus. John the Baptist then hints at who Jesus is and what he came to do before baptizing him. And the next thing we read in Matthew 4 is Matthew's story of Jesus and how the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness for 40 days in order to prepare him for public ministry because that's what Jesus needed. While in the wilderness, Jesus fasted and prayed. Towards the end of that time, Satan came to Jesus for the purpose of tempting him. And his first temptation looks like an absolute fastball right down the middle. Again, we read of this encounter in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, that is Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we read that and we think that Satan's first temptation is about food, right? And undeniably it was, at least in one sense, but Jesus' physical hunger is actually secondary. Satan's temptation went much, much deeper. He was tempting Jesus to doubt his identity and to doubt his relationship with God. That was the actual temptation. If you are the son of God, are you really who you think you are? 
Is that thing that God just said to you, is that really true? Can you trust him? This was actually very similar to the way that Satan tempted Eve by causing her to question her relationship with God. If you remember, Satan tempted Eve by saying, did God really say? In other words, did he really say that? Can you trust yourself? Can you trust God? In both instances, Satan was tempting Adam and Eve to doubt what God had to say about who they were and whether or not he could be trusted to take care of them. Satan tempted them to believe instead that they would have to take matters into their own hands and that they would have to take care of themselves. We know the story of Adam and Eve's downfall, but look at how Jesus responds. Verse 4 says, He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus knew that there was something he needed even more than the food he so desperately craved. Jesus knew that what he needed most was to hear the voice of his father telling him exactly who he was. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you remember, that's the message that God, his father, gave him right before he went out into the wilderness. It was exactly what he needed to hear. If only someone would speak those words over us. If only we knew who we truly were. If only we knew that we were loved and that someone was well pleased with us. I am absolutely convinced that the root of all of the sin in the world, the infidelity, the workaholism, the stealing, the lying, the gossiping, the slander, the list goes on and on, that all of it is a failure to hear and believe God's declaration that for those of us who trust in his son, that we are his daughters and that we are his sons and that we are loved, right? That he is well pleased with us.